UX of EdTech helps people design better ways to support learning. I'm your podcast host, Alicia Kwan, and I look forward to learning with you today. Rachel, I've seen that you say that you're on a mission to ensure educator leaders choose literacy programs that work. Can you tell me more about that? Sure, absolutely. One of the things we've noticed in this country is that the literacy rates has actually been quite stagnant for a really long time, about more than 20 years, in fact. And research has been coming out and showing that there are certain ways to teach reading that improves how well every student learns to read. And what we've noticed is there's been a lag between using the research about how children can learn to read and actually applying that research to teaching children to read. And I want to help bring attention to this issue. Um, some folks are calling it like a civil rights issue, really. Um, every every If you don't know how to read, you can't really participate in society. How can you vote if you don't understand how to read the ballot questions? I mean, ballot questions are confusing to me. <laughs> and I have a PhD. It's very confusing. Yes, no. Um, so... Learning to read is a responsibility, right, of the public school system. And the public schools have been having trouble figuring out which products work to help improve the literacy rates. And really, we don't have any time to lose. The children don't have time to use products that don't work. Teachers don't have time to use products that don't work. That's what makes them have to do so much more work, right, to teach children how to read. So I'm helping spread the word that research can help be the answer to save time, save resources, and help children learn to read. And you have a consulting business, right? LXD Research. Can you tell me more about that and what you do with that? Sure, absolutely. So I've actually been involved in research for a really long time. When my undergraduate um, program had an opportunity for me to do an internship, and I, I studied with uh, Professor Dan Anderson, who actually did research with Nickelodeon, about how to make educational television more educational. Uh, so I've really been um, focused on how to leverage technology to improve educational outcomes for a really long time. So in the last few years, one of the things I noticed is that a lot of products don't have enough research about how well their products work. And research is very expensive. And there aren't that many people who have a lot of experience doing research in the schools with educational products. So I decided to, to start my own business and provide those opportunities um, of conducting high quality, rigorous research, but like as a, at a reasonable price um, and help make sure that also the needs of the schools and the school leaders are also being met through that research. So it's kind of like this win, win, win. The school districts get to learn what products are working for them. The companies get some evidence that their products are working. And I'm like the bridge, putting it all together and getting it out there for the public so the public can make better decisions about what products they're using and purchasing for their students. And what types of research certifications are you helping your your clients attain? Um, Can you tell me more about also why that's important? I know you touched on that, but just want to understand that more deeply. Why are these certifications important? And maybe even, you know, which ones? So I'm a business and there are other research companies that are businesses. Um, then there are nonprofit research companies that maybe are um, 
getting grants from the government or foundations and places like this. And we're all have different levels of experience. We have different designs of our research. So someone has to kind of review the research of other researchers. Maybe you've heard of the term peer review. So that is the kind of certifications or the approach that I take to my research. So I look for nonprofit organizations that focus on research to submit my work and the work, you know, the work that I do on behalf of companies for certifications. There are two main certifications that I focus on for my clients. One is that we that they used research to create the product, that they use those um, evidence-based practices, and that there's real research that shows these practices worked <laughs> with real kids in real places. <laughs> and that certification is, is called the Digital Promise Research-Based Design Certification. And some of those UX designers out there who might be listening, this the Digital Promise uh, website has this amazing resource called the Learner Neri- Learner Variability Navigator that helps show all these different research-based practices that should be informing design. Um, so that certification, uh, so I provide guidance to companies to submit that certification. As part of it, they have to do a logic model. A logic model helps, helps a, a reader understand what are the elements of the product? What are students and teachers doing? What are the learning outcomes that we're expecting or learning objectives, right, that are being expected from using the product? And then what are the short and long-term outcomes that one would expect from using this product? This is pretty foundational. I mean, if you're a UX designer, you need to know what what is someone supposed to learn from using this product, right? So it's a really neat certification in that sense. Digital Promise has other certifications as well. But the one I really focus on is that learner, sorry, that um, research-based product design certification. And it's aligned with the Every Student Succeeds Act, which is the federal law. You know, it's interesting. I go around and I talk to teachers a lot and product people. And I ask them, have you heard of the Every Student Succeeds Act? Or I say, have you heard of ESSA? I have to tell you, a lot of them have not. But when I say, have you heard of No Child Left Behind? Almost every single person I've spoken to says, yes, I've heard of that one. (laughs) So No Child Left Behind was the federal law when George W. Bush was in office. And it really helped set a lot of the testing requirements that we have in schools now that every year there has to be an end of year test. And because of that, there now are usually beginning and middle of year tests that help schools know which students are on track to pass the end of year test. So the Every Student Succeeds Act actually has part of the law that every product used in schools has to have some level of evidence that it should work. This is, believe it or not, very new for education. Like, could you imagine getting a medicine and you got this uh, piece of paper that says, yes, this medicine should maybe work, never, never used with anyone, but you know, here you go, take it, see how it goes. And we think you'll be all better. Your ulcer will be cured but no evidence, no research done, not a child like you, not a, you know, not a woman like me, my size ever taken it, ever been studied. No, thank you. Don't give me that medicine. But we do it every single day in this country with our children, with our students and our teachers in the schools. Most products in the schools right now, in fact, more than two thirds of the top 100 used products right now 
don't even have that digital promise certification that says this product should work. And it's based on research that shows it should work. So starting there, it's a good place to start. Um, yeah, real quick with that, would it be possible that some products say were research-based, um, but maybe it's not to that type of standard that you're talking about? Because most would say, you know, when you go to websites that we are research-based um, because that's an important thing to, to say, right? For, for the reasons you just listed. So I was curious your take on that. This is why I really encourage people to get a certification, whether, whether it's Digital Promise or another certification that shows their product is actually research-based, that someone reviewed it, an expert reviewed it and said, yes, it is. Because anyone can say it doesn't mean it's true or that an expert would say that it's true. Got it. Got it. Okay. So digital promise is kind of your uh, recommendation. Any others? Right. So once you have a product and it's being used, maybe you have some pilots, you're building up some case studies, some testimonials. So that's going to be your social proof. And that social proof is important. And it's a good step. It's a good start towards knowing kind of what, what recipe um, needs to happen for your product to do what you said it was going to do. So once you figure out that recipe, okay, it's three times a week for at least a half an hour. We know there needs to be a, a training in the beginning of the year, a few coaching sessions and Q&As. Okay, you've got your recipe down. So now you need to do an efficacy study. And right now, there's really nothing available in the nonprofit certification space between, hey, I made this thing and my thing works. Here's the proof. There's nothing really in between. So it's this happen. I mean, this is what it is. So the other side of the coin is, okay, so you, so a company has been doing their, um, their thing for a while, right? They come to me and say, Rachel, I am ready for my, um, random control trial, or I'm ready to have a big study treatment group versus comparison group. Say, okay, let's do it. So perhaps you've heard of the, what works clearinghouse, the, what works clearinghouse, I'm telling you 25 plus pages of rules and protocols and things that the researcher has to meet. I highly recommend finding an experienced researcher to help you plan this study. It just simply cannot be done by alone and it can't be done with someone who hasn't done it before. So once you have that research partner, then you find your school district partner. You figure out some schools use the program, some schools don't use the program. You follow all these rules and protocols in place. At the end, you have your story and for free, get no dollars exchanged. The Center for Research and Reform in Education, it's over at John Hopkins University and it's the evidenceforessa.org website. You submit your paper to them, they review it and then it is public. So you gotta be a little confident. <laughs> you gotta be a little confident when you send it over to them. Because I do have to tell you that if you send over a paper to them and it's not eligible for review, they do list your company's name on the website that you don't have any eligible studies. So you want to be ready. You want to be sure you're ready. And I actually have um, six papers that have been reviewed and approved by the Evidence for ESSA website in the last five years. Um, now, back to literacy. Remember how we were talking about using products that work? Well, only 16 studies have been even reviewed and approved. 
by the Evidence for ESSA website in the last five years. So if I've done six and only 16 approved, that means I've led, Rachel Schechter's led 40% of the studies in the entire country for literacy? I mean, that's crazy. It's crazy that that other people aren't doing this work, that other vendors aren't aren't getting, you know, doing this research and getting it reviewed. So I highly recommend doing high quality research when you're ready and submitting it for formal review. That's all really, really interesting. Thanks for unpacking that more. And I'm wondering, a lot of people are UX researchers that listen to this podcast. Um, how does all of that fit into this? Um, curious about the the overlap there. Um, and even for smaller companies where maybe, um, you know, they don't have a, a large research team and maybe there's one researcher that's putting on several hats. So there's someone who really inspires me and that's Michael Horn. And I was just listening to a podcast um, of his this morning and I've actually seen him speak live um, multiple times. And he talks about innovation and how do you do innovation? And when I think of UX research, I really think of one person on a team who's trying to innovate. No, I don't think anybody becomes a UX researcher because they want to do the same old thing again that that was always done that didn't work before, right? So Michael Horn says, start early and start small. And I'm going to add test often. So that's what that UX researcher is going to be doing. Remember that recipe I talked about trying to figure out what are those ingredients and, you know, are we using Are we sifting the flour or are we not sifting the flour? You know, are we pouring the flour a little bit at a time or are we pouring the whole thing in all at once? This is what the UX researcher is figuring out in that recipe to make sure that once it's out to everyone and it's, you know, that blog post where the recipe is out in the world, um, everybody can follow it, right? And and people can use it and do it with it is um, the the way it's supposed to be. And I would hope that UX researchers are also very involved in collecting feedback from pilots. So a pilot experience is often a short trial of using a product kind of full force, um, as opposed to like prototype review or other kinds of pre-release experiences. And that could be a great way to help inform iteration for future development. So really getting that feedback also often and early. Um, The UX researchers really are the ones that are putting it all together so the efficacy researchers can then see how it worked in a longer term with more kids. Got it. Got it. That's great. Um, great comparison. And and with that too, and thinking about people that are um, in education and ed tech research, maybe as UX researchers, but wondering about advice you have for all of those different types of um, researchers listening to this. So when I've been talking with transitioning teachers and other folks who want to get into UX design and UX research, you know, I think they, what I'm hearing is they are really thinking about the skills that they are, that they had as teachers, that they were building as teachers, and they're now trying to apply in other spaces. And what I would really encourage folks to do is know that what you're doing in UX research can be applied to many other types of research that goes on in ed tech industry. Um, And not only for learning in a traditional K-12 space, but all kinds of learning that's happening at the corporate level, um, people with their own career development. Maybe actually you love teaching teachers and you didn't even know you love teaching teachers. Um, There are there's different age groups that you might um, find that you adore. 
working with even more than the students maybe you worked with for so many years. Um, there are so many different roles beyond just learning designer or UX designer um, that can be that can be placed in different lines of business, and those skills can really help you succeed. That's great. Well, one more thing. Um, we talked about this before we um, started rolling this call. I, I was curious if you could just speak one more time to what you're seeing with districts and their interest in being involved in research since you've been doing this for for so long. Um, you mentioned that there's a difference right now than you've noticed in years past. So for a long time, doing educational research kind of seemed like I was asking the school to, for them to do us a favor, um, that we were putting them out. Um, maybe they felt like they were the, being the guinea pigs and trying something new and that they didn't know if it was going to work or not. And you can, you can understand how, because I've kind of been in, at the edge of technology all these years, um, that that kind of makes sense, right? I'm asking people to try something really different, really new, you know, back 10, 15 years ago. But nowadays, especially since uh, schools needed to use a lot more technology in the pandemic, they have access to so much more technology. It's actually an overload. <laughs> they have so much, so many tools, so many technologies, and so many messages coming to them from products saying that this product's going to work, this product's going to work. But they actually do need some help figuring out which products are working and which products are helping them go in the right direction because they don't, again, they don't have time to use products that aren't working. I'm also noticing schools are being very sensitive to the staff and the students who are, um, who are wanting to get comfortable and not have so much changing around them. And in schools, there's so much change happening all the time new curriculum rolling out for so many reasons, not, not by choice, right? Most for most cases. So I'm noticing that some schools are a little bit more interested or more willing to do that starts early, start small approach or build maybe one grade at a time or start with two schools, learn from that, get some capacity building going and then expanding. And those mindsets are really conducive and friendly to research. In the Evidence for ESSA website, you just need two schools uh, to be in each group, treatment and comparison. So I was speaking with a school district leader just last week, and they already tried a new product. They started it in January. So they were interested in building on that product to have a tier two product that kind of matched and had the same language as their tier one product. Again, how novel. I mean, I'm sorry, being sarcastic here because just they, people don't haven't been doing this for all these years. Yes using the same language, the same terminology makes a lot of sense, right? So I asked, would you be interested in having two schools start with the intervention and then waiting to roll it out to everyone else? And he said, and I, and I really narrowed it in on his wish, right? The districts want to understand the capacity building needs. So by me really hearing the user's needs, right? The buyer's needs, I was able to tie in my agenda, my needs of having two schools start and not have other schools start. And really, we both realized it was the best option for everyone to have just two schools start and then have other schools start later. So you can kind of see how that conversation could have went. And then by the end, not only did I have him agree to do the data collection for next year, but he even offered to give me last year's data so we could kind of do a before they started tier one and then after they started tier one comparison as well. So believe it or not, I'm actually going to be getting four studies. I didn't even tell you about the other two. 
four studies from this school district at this one conversation. Yeah. So what what I'm hearing is there's a new ripened appetite for participating in this research because the plethora of options, so many options out there, let's get serious about what is actually working, um, what's actually effective, and how can we go about this in, in the best possible way. Um, and so being involved in that and partnering with researchers, I'm, I'm hearing it both from the um, the school system side and the school district side, and then also, of course, from the product side <laughs> that research is very, very crucial and important. Um, thanks so much, Rachel, just for for sharing all of this. Yeah. Do you have any kind of last thoughts, last words? And would love to also hear how people can follow you and your work. Yeah. The one last thing I wanted to point out about the dynamics is policy. Because while it's the law that all companies have evidence that their product works, it has not been enforced. And when you have a law that no one enforces, people don't follow it, right? So because of the pandemic, there was a little bit of a delay on the states and uh, the federal regulators, right, in, in having schools actually show that their products that they're purchasing have evidence that they work. So really what we're noticing is that at the state level, literacy products are the ones that are kind of being targeted right now. Um, but I could imagine that math products might be next. And then I would think professional learning products would be shortly thereafter in having to have the evidence that they need to show that the products are effective. The best way to follow me is definitely on LinkedIn. That's my space that I give free advice every day. I highlight um, research related and uh, structured literacy related news um, every day. And then my website is www.lxdresearch.com. And that's where I post um, new studies that we've done or new things that are uh, new articles on topics that are kind of relevant and out there in the world. I have a podcast that I'm co-hosting as well with my friend, Nate uh, Nathaniel Hanford, Nate Hansford, and he it, that's called Pedagogy Non Grata. We just started doing it last week and it's really fun. So we're going to keep doing that. Um, and then the last place you can find me is drrachelschechter.com. I'm available. I love speaking to people. I love learning about teaching about research, learning from others about what they need to hear about research and what their questions are. So that's a great way to learn more about the kinds of uh, topics that I discuss and my expertise, you wanted to have me come and present. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in growing in your understanding of UX in the tech space, we offer a number of resources that could help, including articles, a community Slack, and learning events. There are two main ways to access that, our LinkedIn page and our free newsletter. Check the show notes for ways to connect. This episode's theme music is by the band Sleep Still. UX of EdTech helps people design better ways to support learning. I'm your host, Alicia Kwan, and I look forward to learning with you next time.